Hello, welcome to Small Findings. I'm Jim Kang, an artist and software engineer. Each week, I bring you information that I feel I've understood well enough to at least explain to you. This week, we have both regular and gravitational lensing. The surprising tone and anachronisms in the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. The appeal of The Lord of the Rings to a five-year-old. And a good way to flavor a burger. I'd also like to mention that I've collected some of the findings that don't translate well to speech at all, largely technical stuff, and I put them on my weblog, which I'll link in the show notes. Oh, I also have to apologize for the audio quality again. This time, I kept the phone on a coffee can so that it would stay in a fixed position throughout recording, but that position was too far away from my face, so a lot of noise got in. Also, I have to reconsider the kitchen being the best room in the apartment to record in because the situation really changes when the fridge turns on. Enough of that, though. On to the findings. Via my internet friend Dan, I heard about this plan to use gravitational lensing to take pictures of planets a hundred light years away. This is something I wanted to believe and wanted to believe I understood, but I realized there was a lot I just didn't understand here. The biggest problem I realized was that I forgot how regular lenses work. So I relearned that. A lens works by bending light that goes through it. Think of the classic situation in which someone is using a magnifying glass to burn ants. I know this happens all the time, right? The rays of sunlight come down from the sun to the magnifying glass. And for practical purposes, the rays of light are basically parallel to each other. The magnifying glass bends the rays of light so that after they go through the glass, they, they converge toward each other and they converge upon a single point. And that point is where the unfortunate ant is. This point is on what's called the focal plane. There is some handy stuff you could do with being able to compact rays of light onto a focal plane in addition to destroying insects. An optical telescope works by having a lens that's larger than the human eye. Because it's larger, it can gather more light than the human eye can. Gathering more light means that it can get light that is fainter and from more distant objects. However, how can it get what's captured by a bigger lens into a human eye, which is still the same size no matter how big the telescope is? This is where a focal plane is handy. The light from an observed object goes through the telescope's outer objective lens, and that objective lens bends the rays to make a com more compact image at a focal plane, like the magnifying glass does with the sun's rays uh, to focus the light on an ant. At the focal plane, we can electronically capture the image, and then we could do whatever we want with it or as the old school Keplerian telescopes can do, um, we can just have another lens there that makes the rays diverge again 
to project uh, an image big enough for the human eye to perceive. Back to gravitational lensing, to understand these, uh, we have to not, under not only uh, understand how lenses basically work, but we have to know that light and other electromagnetic radiation follows the curvature of space-time. Mass curves space-time, and this is something I know from pop culture. Really large objects like stars or you know, supermassive objects like black holes create big curves in space-time. So given that light curves around space-time and large masses uh, create big curves in space-time, that means when light goes by a massive object, it curves around it. So they're basically, those big objects are basically bending the light. And bending light is what everyday optical lenses do as well, as we've talked about. So Einstein, as well as two other physicists, Oresk Folsen and Frantisek Link, realized that large masses like clusters of galaxies could basically act as lenses. As we've talked about, a handy property of bent light is that if it's bent to converge, as in the case of the magnifying glass or telescope, there will be a focal plane at which you could collect all the light reflected from a distant object in a compact area. The other nice thing is that the focal plane might be closer to you than the plane at which you would have to be to directly capture the light from a particular object. This really matters at certain scales, like um, when you want to see exoplanets. In the case of exoplanets 100 million light years away, this article in the Planetary Society says that we now know of a massive object that is creating a focal plane containing light from those exoplanets. The good news is the focal plane is only 97 billion kilometers away. 97 billion kilometers away is extremely far. However, the people working on the project think that via solar sailing, you could get a spacecraft over there in 25 years. The article said that to get the same images without gravitational lensing from Earth, you'd have to have a 90 kilometer wide telescope. When I first read this, I thought, sure, it is ridiculous to build a telescope bigger than Rhode Island. But, you know, if money was not an object, would it be less risky? It is, after all, just, quote, old-fashioned telescope building. Yeah, I'm using quote because that's what I was thinking. I'm not quoting anyone else. It's just old-fashioned telescope building. None of this zany gravitational lensing and solar sailing, right? No. For comparison, the Hubble Space Telescope is an optical telescope that has a 2.4 meter diameter mirror. The mirror is the part that gathers the light in this kind of telescope. It's uh, the analog to the objective lens in the Keplerian optical telescope. Construction on the lens started in 1979 and it was finished in 1981. When the telescope launched nine years later in 1990, they found that the outer perimeter was too flat by 2200 nanometers, which is 1 450th of a millimeter. This was catastrophic. It prevented it from focusing, which made it useless. To fix it, 
they had to attach corrective mirrors in space. So I guess that it's riskier to try to correctly make a telescope that is around 1.4 billion times as large as the Hubble than it is to try to solar sail a spacecraft over to the gravitational lensing focal plane. Anderson, who is five, asked again about reading Lord of the Rings sometime last week. If you have not heard of it, it is an extremely long novel, divided into three books for publishing purposes, that establishes a lot of the archetypes used in the fantasy genre. In it, Frodo and his friends must travel a great distance in order to destroy an evil ring. Frodo and many of his friends are hobbits, uh, and hobbits are this fantasy race of short people that live in well-furnished holes in the ground. It's a sequel to a much shorter novel, The Hobbit, which we've read three times now. I don't know when the first read was, but the last read was about one and a half years ago. Here's Anderson's comments on the Wood Elves in the story from that time. I think the Wood Elves are... I think the mean Wood Elves are friends of the goblins. Well, we'll find out. It might be more complicated this, than that. Is this... is this Smog's Mountain? That's right, that is Smog's Mountain. That's from later. They made it to Smog's Mountain? Well, later on in the book, they'll make it to Smog's Mountain. He's used to his books coming in series, so he asked whether there were more Hobbit books. I told him about The Lord of the Rings, but I said that it was scary in parts. I said he could read it when he's 10 years old. I first read it when I was 15 or 16, after reading a lot of derivative works for years like the Dragonlance novels. Since we're kind of dying for new things to do lately, I said I'd look at Lord of the Rings and see if there were any non-scary parts at the beginning to read. It does start with Bilbo's 111st birthday party, which I remember being harmless. So we started reading. Then we read past that. We're on the seventh chapter now. There's a couple of things I found out in this read-through. The first is that the character of the book in the first few chapters is extremely different from that of the rest of the series. I did know this before, but I either did not remember or did not fully realize the extent to which it was different. It is, of course, a bridge from The Hobbit, which is chiefly a children's book, and in my opinion, a better novel than The Lord of the Rings, which was originally intended to be one novel. It starts in a place called the Shire, home of the Hobbits. Their names, in order to make them more relatable to the presumed British raider, are far, far more modern and British-sounding than all the other names in the book. They don't have names like Boromir or Expelion. The hobbits have names like Rory Brandybuck and Fredegar Bolger. Instead of grand Beowulf-type speech, uh, they tend to have more something close to like middle or lower class British speech. They say things like Jules spelled J-O-O-L-S. Possibly to connect to the modern reader, Tolkien uses a surprisingly anachronistic simile to describe an illusory dragon that Gandalf creates with firework magic. The passage goes, The dragon passed like an express train, turned a somersault, and burst over bywater with a deafening explosion. It's extremely hard to imagine him referencing express trains later on in the Mines of Moria or something like that. 
There is a part in which we hear what a fox is thinking about the hobbits, which I didn't remember at all. I can't imagine we're going to get the inner monologues of woodland critters uh, ever again in this book. The hobbits also enjoy a level of organization and wealth that is decidedly unfeudal, unlike the rest of Middle-earth, uh, the, the continent that uh, this, all this takes place in. The hobbits aren't ruled by a lord, and they actually have a reliable postal service. There's this proud human nation in the book, Rohan, and Rohan is rife with horses. But because they're so epic and proud, it's hard to imagine a Rohirrim mail carrier taking letters from various nobodies to other nobodies. The elves don't even have mail delivery. The hobbits also have this incredible level of prosperity. There are classes among them, but no slavery or, or even any slums as far as we can tell. Sam Gamgee, one of the main characters, is a lower class gardener, but he also seems to enjoy five meals a day just like the rest of them. On a hobbit's birthday, the hobbit gives presents to everyone they know. It is explained that it follows then that Hobbits are all constantly receiving presents. They all seem to have plenty of leisure time to bake and drink tea and sing and also acquire presents for each other. There are plenty of shops to supply them with everything they need. It's implied that the Hobbits are the lowliest of the humanoids, that it's better to be a dwarf, human, or elf. But possibly due to Tolkien's interest in making them relatable to the reader, they enjoy a state of civilization advanced far beyond that of the honorable and serious sword-bearing races in the book. People in human history that lived with lords in armor, like the, you know, the proud warrior nations like Rohan and um, the Numenorians, the people that lived like that actually aspired to live like the hobbits do. The second finding about The Lord of the Rings is that it can indeed appeal to a five-year-old. As I remembered, the book contains a lot of descriptions of scenery, just paragraphs and paragraphs describing vegetation and different kinds of depressions in the land. And yet, the guy is into it. The first thing he says to me when he sees me in the morning is, can we read Lord of the Rings now? I have, at best, a partial explanation for the appeal. First, I do know that he likes silly words. The father of one of the main protagonists, Sam Gamgee, is named Hamfast Gamgee. Hamfast! There is also an old master Garbadoc. Anderson really likes to repeat this phrase, or this name, even though it only appears in passing on one page. Tom Bombadil both has a funny name and uses a lot of nonsense words. There's also the appeal of abundance. I think he likes that the book goes on and on, even if there's a whole lot of it that he doesn't understand. He likes when he sees words that repeat diagonally in the pages of the book. And similarly, when you understand parts of the narrative but not all of it, maybe you imagine that the parts that you don't understand are really good and really fast. And then there is the fact that, from his vantage point, the story has a high amount of mystery. He's used to books in which every character is clearly labeled. For example, in Investigators, a book about alligator investigators who wear vests, it is a big deal that there's a guy doing crimes 
while wearing a raincoat with a hood pulled down so that you can't see his face. Early on in Lord of the Rings, a rider overtakes Frodo and Sam on the road. Tolkien describes the rider as such. Round the corner came a black horse, no hobbit pony, but a full-sized horse. And on it sat a large man who seemed to crouch in the saddle, wrapped in a great black cloak and hood, so that his only his boots and the high stirrups showed below. His face was shadowed and invisible. Invisible here means not visible, but Anderson now always talks about these guys as having invisible faces or no face, like the character in Investigators that had his face erased because he was rude to the author. Immediately, he asked who that writer was, and I said that I didn't know, but I had a guess. Every day, Anderson talks about who the writers might be, whether or not they might be bad, if they're scary or not, and what he knows about what I know, and he asks if I'll tell him if my guess was wrong or not. My guess actually was wrong. I didn't remember the order of events in The Lord of the Rings, so I thought that writer might have been Aragorn. Aragorn is a hero guy, and I thought he was appearing in his guise as Strider. But then in another encounter with a writer, the writer is crawling around on the ground sniffing, which is not an indignity that Tolkien would put Aragorn through. Then I did realize who they actually were. I'll pause here a moment so that you could skip forward in case uh, you don't want to be spoiled. Riders are the Nazgul. Sauron, the main evil guy, gave these ancient human kings rings that gradually turned them into his undead slaves. Perhaps inaccurately, I remember them being super powerful though, and crawling around and sniffing seems below their station as well. It is appropriately creepy though. Later on, we read about the Barrow White pulling Frodo down into the Barrow. A Barrow uh, is basically a big, giant burial mound. And a, a white is uh, some kind of undead supernatural ghost guy. Anderson immediately wanted to know who it was and what it was. The answer is always, we have to keep reading to find out. All of these unnamed entities that are not immediately fully described are incredibly powerful to him in a narr narrative sense. And then there is also the metadrama about when the scary parts will start and if these identity mysteries will be solved before we hit them and have to stop reading. I asked Anderson about what his current thinking about the writers is and he got a little bit into the meta mystery. The book hasn't given me enough information about the writers for for me to get guesses of who they really are yet. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I don't think you can know. Yeah. Or do you have any concerns for anybody in the book right now? Does the end even tell you? The end does tell you. And it actually you get to learn before the end who the writers are. Oh. Yeah. But uh, 
but I, about Weasel, but I don't know if it's in the scary parts or not yet. Yeah. Yeah, I'll read ahead and see if there's any scary parts that we need to, if we need to stop or not. I didn't actually know when the scary parts would start either, because I can't accurately model what registers as scary. The apparent death of a major character will happen in a hundred pages or so, and I'd think that would be upsetting. But I'm not clear on how well he actually understands death right now. One of his favorite graphic novel series, Dogman, is about a hero that is half cop, half human cop, and half dog. They got caught in a bomb blast together, and as a result, the cop's head was dying, and the dog's body was dying. So they sewed the dog's head to the cop's body. This is not at all upsetting to him, nor to millions of other kids between the ages of four through eight. However, there is a villain in Dogman that wore a box on his head, and Anderson finds that scary. In Lord of the Rings, we've read about living trees trapping Frodo's companions, Merry and Pippin. That wasn't scary, but that may have been because Tolkien's ponderous prose kind of dulled the impact. However, we just read about the Barrow Whites tonight. I asked him if it was scary, and he said, mostly no. But he's gotten out of bed over five times now, talking about various other things that are scary, like a mystery beeping sound. It does seem unlikely to be a coincidence. My speculation is that the scary part of the Barrow White encounter involves getting lost and separated from your friends, which is less abstract to kids than getting eaten by a magic tree. So we'll talk about it tomorrow, but I may have to read ahead for real now. Grilling is something that consistently helps me when I'm feeling bummed out, so I've been doing a bit more of it during the pandemic. I've also recently made changes to my hamburger flavoring. Here's what goes into my burgers, besides ground beef. Long ago, my friend Dan recommended I put paprika on burgers. Paprika has a taste that I struggle to describe. It's kind of punchy, maybe a little bit bitter, kind of dry. It really works, though. Also long ago, but sometime after the paprika tip, an essayist wrote about meeting neighbors as a kid in the 70s. And these neighbors were the first people he met that were, were gay and that all, also they cooked in order to make things taste good uh, for hedonistic reasons. Uh, they didn't cook just to have something to eat. The striking part to me was that they put lots of salt on their burgers. So I started putting lots of salt on as well, and it's worked. I'd say roughly a palmful. Now, that's not a very good unit of description, but you know, maybe several shakes. Maybe I'll measure it out for another time. But a significant amount of salt on each side of each burger, along with a pepper. The burgers don't just taste salty, although they also do taste salty. Uh, the salt really brings out the beef flavor, I think. Just a couple weeks ago, I started using Worcestershire sauce on the burgers. We keep it around mostly for making Chex Mix, but it is actually meant for meat. I haven't done a blind taste test, but I think it really adds to the depth of flavor. 
Perhaps coincidentally, my kid likes burgers more than ever. Thanks for listening. Do you have any findings you want to share? Do you have any comments you want to make? If so, email smallfindings at fastmail.com. That's S-M-A-L-L-F-I-N-D-I-N-G-S at sign F-A-S-T-M-A-I-L dot C-O-M. See you next week. Okay, well, we found him, right? Found the other three guys. But... What do you think is going to happen now? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Do you think they're going to be okay? Maybe. Maybe. I think they'll be okay. Um, Was that scary? Well, at first it was a It seemed a little scary, but after a while I didn't think it was that scary. Oh, good. Okay. High five.